Welcome to CNS Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Timothy Clossy, who began our discussion by presenting a couple of patients from his practice that touch on two of the most important recent developments in GBM, the increasingly recognized critical phenomena of pseudoprogression and the use of bevacizumab in recurrent disease. The first patient was a 48-year-old man. He began having headaches. These headaches were fairly gradual in their onset, but they were pretty severe eventually, and he could not control them with any over-the-counter analgesics. He was having headaches and waking up with headaches. So we got an MRI scan, and it showed a right... It was really temporal with a frontal component. It was in the right hemisphere. It was contrast-enhancing. It had surrounding edema. The contrast-enhancing area was a rim of contrast-enhancement, so it had central necrosis that was present. The patient was evaluated by a neurosurgeon, had a subtotal resection. They were able to remove most of the temporal lobe part, but not the frontal lobe part. It was too close to some of the middle cerebral artery vasculature there. The pathology came back. It was consistent with the glioblastoma. Lots of mitoses. The K67 is 30 to 40%. And we did have some molecular data on him that it showed that he had methylated promoter of MGMT. The patient went on to get, you know, our typical therapy. And what is the standard therapy, which is radiation therapy and chemotherapy together. And after the completion of radiation and chemotherapy, he started getting a significant headache and got an MRI scan. And that MRI scan was obtained about a week and a half after radiation was completed. And it showed around the area of the resection and of the residual tumor area, all those areas had increased with regard to the amount of uh, contrast enhancement and surrounding edema. There was you know, a pretty significant shift that was present there, and it was decided at that point that he would have a second surgery. So to my naive ears, I'm thinking pseudoprogression. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think to... Because I keep listening to you guys talk about it so much. I think to your not-so-naive ears, I think that's what I was thinking. Now, I actually didn't see the patient until after his second surgery. And so he did have a second surgery. The pathology showed that there were some areas of necrosis, but that there were clear areas where there was residual tumor, but there was no mitotic activity. The KI-67 was very spotty. Some areas it was zero, other areas up to 10%. But there was no clear area of mitotic activity. So when I evaluate that and I look at that, I see that that's very different from the initial surgery. I'm very concerned about this being pseudoprogression. I'm concerned that people misinterpret just the tissue evaluation that might occur after surgery and say, well, there's tumor there. It must be recurrent tumor. It doesn't have to be recurrent tumor. It could be treated tumor in that setting. The patient went on and got some steroids, did fine, and then had a repeat MRI scan a month later, and there was no change in the scan after surgery. So he has continued on with temozolomide and will be watched carefully during that time. And I have to say, in the end, I don't know the answer to this one as I'm following him. He might actually end up having tumor progression, But at this point, I could watch him with monthly scans. I could be certain that this is not progressing, and I could feel that we could continue him on with temozolomide. So this case brings up a couple things that I hear from a lot of investigators in this field. First, the issue of MGMT, and I'll ask if you could go through that again. 
and also, again, pseudoprogression. If you could talk a little bit about what you understand about it and whether we've learned anything new about either one of these things. Well, I think first, the MGMT methylation status is very interesting. First, methylguanine methyltransferase, the gene creates the protein alkylguanine alkyltransferase. And when there are methyl groups or alkyl groups that are created from chemotherapy, the alkylguanine alkyltransferase basically removes those abnormal links that have been created and allows the tumor to continue to proliferate and copy DNA. If the promoter is methylated, the gene is not going to be expressed at a very high level. Therefore, now if patients get these chemotherapies, they will have a response, they will have cell kill that occurs, and the patients hopefully would do better. Now, we do know that there is a correlation between survival and methylated promoter of MGMT, that patients will survive longer, whether they get radiation, whether they get radiation and chemotherapy, they will survive longer than those that have unmethylated promoter of MGMT. So we're clear that it's a prognostic factor. We think that it's a predictive factor for temozolomide. The reason that we don't know this is because there hasn't been a prospective evaluation that has taken place to validate that. At this point, we think that it is and that it does predict for a better response to temozolomide versus radiation alone. And when you talk about greater survival, though, I mean, is that just a matter of a few months or is the, quote, cure rate greater? Well, it depends what we call cure. If we say what percentage of patients at five years are alive, it's going to be dramatically different between the two. So those that are unmethylated, the percentage is going to be probably between zero and three percent. And those that are methylated are going to be up to 10 to 15%. That's at five years. And the numbers, of course, are better at two, three, and four years. So I think that, again, we never say we cure glioblastoma. But I think that it's creating a stratification that might be important with regard to survival. Incidentally, when you say you never cure it, does that mean that we don't have cases of people with clear-cut, confirmed histologically GBM who, you know, live 20 years and have nothing at autopsy? I think that's correct. There are some that live 20 years, and that will happen. And you could do a histologic evaluation on their initial tumor sample, and it will be glioblastoma. But I don't think that they're likely to have no tumor at autopsy. I think that's very unlikely. What about pseudoprogression? Anything new with that? Kind of the view that I've gotten is I'm not really clear whether it's edema or tumor necrosis, but in some way the imaging looks worse, but really the tumor isn't. Yeah, I think that there's a number of things. So what we have to think about is a patient has a surgery. They get a post-operative scan. That post-operative scan is done probably within 48 hours. And it's before there's surgical changes that occur. They're also probably on the highest dose of dexamethasone at that time. They might be on 40 milligrams of dexamethasone. So then they'll go and get radiation therapy. That might take two to six weeks for them to get radiation therapy to initiate it. That radiation therapy then goes on for about six weeks and with chemotherapy. And then two weeks after that, we get a scan. So you got to say, okay, so what has happened during this time? One, They're scarring from the surgery that occurs and will evolve over time. It'll look worse as you go out at probably two weeks, maybe look maximally worse at four weeks from surgery. Then as you get further out, it starts to resolve, but there's still some changes that are present. 
The second thing is we decrease steroids. That means there's going to be more contrast enhancement. So that will make the scan look worse over time until you get that scan after radiation therapy. The third thing is, depending on how long a time period you have between starting or your post-surgical scan and starting radiation therapy, if that's a long time, tumor can grow during that time. And then you again have this scan. And then the last thing is you can have reactive changes that occur just from the radiation therapy and temozolomide together. So that first post-radiation scan really should be a baseline scan. It should not be a scan that we try to interpret response or anything like that. We should just take that and say, that's our baseline scan. Now, when we get the next scan, we look for changes. Now, if we do that, if we evaluate it in that way, we'll decrease much of the noise that is associated with pseudoprogression. There's still going to be a rare case that continues to evolve even after radiation and shows continued progression, but that's going to be less than 5%. And the reason that we kind of know that that's less than 5% is because when we have done recurrent studies, if you take a look at first recurrent studies, and we used to enroll people at four weeks after radiation therapy, and even though we did that, the response rate was still about 5%, and the six-month progression-free survival was no greater than 20%. If there were a lot of folks that fit into there, we would have recognized that, and we would have had a huge difference whether we selected people early or later. And the reality is most of us can look at that and say, These are post-operative changes. These are post-therapy changes. We're going to wait on it. And I think most people do that. Let's talk about your 65-year-old man. So this is a very nice gentleman who's an engineer. He had a seizure, was brought to the emergency room, and had an MRI scan. And it also showed what was quite typical for a glioblastoma, left parietal lobe lesion, ring enhancement, central necrosis, lots of edema. He had a gross total resection that was performed, and of course, when we say gross total resection, kind of imaging contrast enhancement resection. The pathology came back as a GBM, but post-op, as he was in the ICU, he developed a PE and then had ARDS. The patient was anticoagulated and was basically intubated and was doing very poorly with regard to his pulmonary status. There was a discussion that we had with the family at the time that was, okay, this is a bad disease. Do you want to continue with therapy or not? And we talked about all the possible options, all the treatments that might be available, and they decided they wanted to continue to have him treated in the ICU to get through the ARDS to see if he would get through that. And then once he was through that, we could get a scan and evaluate how he was doing. Eventually, he got over the ARDS, but he was just really impaired globally. He had significant myopathy because he was on steroids. He was basically wheelchair-bound. We did get a scan at that time, and the scan showed mostly post-surgical type changes, and he did go on to get radiation and chemotherapy, but he could not get off of dexamethasone during this time, and he had significant proximal myopathy. The first post-radiation scan showed some minor increase in contrast, just like we said happens, but the second or third scan that he got after that still on dexamethasone, showed further increase. So in this case, we were concerned that he had tumor progression, that he was steroid-dependent, that he couldn't recover neurologically very well because of the steroids, and so he hadn't really been able to rehab out of this ARDS and the other problems, but he was still cognitively very functional. At that point, because he had all these problems, we put him on bevacizumab. The edema went down dramatically, The contrast-enhancing areas went down. We were able to start him on a taper of dexamethasone, 
and were able to get them completely off of dexamethasone at that time. The other issue was that he was anticoagulated and he had a PE. Is this a problem for us and patients who are on bevacizumab? And in our brain study, we were able to continue to treat people on bevacizumab who had prior PEs or who were anticoagulated. So that actually was not a problem. I've heard about using Bev with anticoagulation in other tumors as well, but I'm not sure I've heard about using Bev in somebody who's had a recent PE. Yeah, well, in this case, the PE would probably be about 8 to 10 weeks from the time that we initiated Bev. We've been able to do that, and we haven't had a problem with it. We've been able to diagnose people on BEV with a PE and continue to treat them on BEV and anticoagulate them. Is that something that there's sort of agreement with investigators? Yes. I think everybody feels comfortable treating DBTs, and the majority of us who have enough experience in treating patients with bevacizumab who get a PE. Now, you have to realize that a PE in a GBM patient really comes from evaluating these patients carefully. Sometimes they have very minimal symptoms, but you'll get a spiral CT scan and you'll see that they have pulmonary emboli. I think in that setting, we don't have a problem at all. If they have real compromise, pulmonary compromise because of the PE, we probably would not use bevacizumab in that setting. Hmm. Interesting. So what's this man's current situation? So he's walking, he's back to work, he's doing great completely off of dexamethasone, continues to be anticoagulated, and is getting bevacizumab alone at this point. He's been doing that now for about a year. I got to say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I said that too. I actually, I want to bring him back to the ICU, to the physicians that were taking care of him. That's unbelievable. I mean, you know, because you only wrote the first part of the write-up in there. I didn't see the end with the Bev in there. That is unbelievable. Right. I know I have this vision of this guy in the ICU with ARDS, and now he's walking around. Unbelievable. Yeah. I never expected to hear that part of it. Hmm. Anything else you want to say about him? I'm just stunned. I think the main things about this is, one, you don't want to give up on your patients. You never know how they're going to do coming out of this. Two, there's really no contraindication with the use of anticoagulation and bevacizumab, even in the setting of a PE. Three, that bevacizumab does allow patients to get off dexamethasone, and dexamethasone can prevent people from recovering from very serious illnesses just like as ARDS. And then, you know, the last thing that I think is kind of interesting about the use of anti-VEGF therapy, and really we talk about bevacizumab, I think only because we have the most experience with it, is that those that are over 55, I think, tend to do better with BEV. And there is this interesting data that shows that the transcripts for VEGF, the RNA transcripts for VEGF, are increased in patients who are over 55 as compared to under 55 with glioblastoma. And it may be that VEGF is being driven more in the elderly who have glioblastoma than those that are younger. It's funny because, you know, I was just editing an audio program in breast cancer of a case where a patient had an asymptomatic pulmonary embolus, as you mentioned, you know, diagnosed on imaging, and the investigator was like, no way am I going to use BEV. But, you know, I guess breast and GBM are pretty different diseases, too. GBM, you have a lot more efficacy in BEV, and here's this guy who really had a huge and breast cancer. Maybe it's a little bit more tangential. And also, you're dealing with, I guess, people deteriorating a lot faster. But still, I kind of wonder about this. i got to mull that one over and ask other people. (laughs) Ask, yeah. I think you'll find when you ask some of the other neuro-oncologists that they don't have a problem treating through pulmonary emboli 
Wow. Especially asymptomatic ones. Yeah, you know, because sometimes, you know, we've been talking to investigators for several years now, and this is the first time it ever came up. Yeah. And I'm, you know, these important issues that are not too common, sometimes you don't get to them. But I'm definitely going to start asking other people about that. I mean, you know, in a way, what you're saying makes sense. And certainly in this patient, even if there was a risk, he sort of didn't have too much to lose. Right. In GBM, probably 25% of the patients get DVTs and maybe 5 to 10% get PEs. Hmm. So it's a very common problem that we deal with. So it's not unusual that we have to deal with this. When you were talking earlier, when we were talking about the brain study and the survival, you know, and how it was better, but I was sitting here thinking, God, what a tough disease. You know, yeah. those numbers still are not very good. No, they're not. And how tough it must be reminds me of the lung investigators. How do you go through all day long taking care of just these kinds of patients? But I guess this 65-year-old man is sort of why, huh? Yeah, and I also think because there's lots of agents that are coming up, and it's a great opportunity to do something with this disease and to have the patients be a part of it. I guess also is the biology of this disease, which I guess we're still sort of working on. Any new hints in terms of that? I remember, I think, if I'm correct, GBM is one of the tumors that's been looked at in the whole sequencing project. Yeah. Anything coming out of that or anywhere else that kind of explains why it's so different? That was the TCGA data. And, you know, they basically identified three pathway abnormalities, broad pathway abnormalities, the RTK, RAS, PI3 kinase, P53, and RB. And what we really haven't done yet is target RB and P53 abnormalities of these pathways that are abnormal. We've been spending all of our time on the RTK, RAS, and PI3 kinase. And maybe we need to be thinking a bit more about the abnormalities that exist in these other areas. And they're starting to come out with some interesting agents, and we'll see how they apply to glioblastoma. What's new in terms of clinical research data on bevacizumab and GBM? You presented at ASCO the most recent results of the so-called brain study looking at this agent. I think the important thing was this was a study that evaluated patients in recurrent glioblastoma. The patients were randomized to either receive bevacizumab alone or bevacizumab and CPT-11. And the group that was randomized to receive bevacizumab alone received the bevacizumab until failure, and then they had the opportunity to switch over to bevacizumab and CPT-11. The data had been presented previously. The two groups, and again, these are open-label evaluations, randomized about 80 patients in each arm. And the initial data showed that the response rates, the six-month progression-free survival, and the survival were all showing significant benefits compared to historical controls. And there was not a control arm in this particular setting, uh, the control arm being just chemotherapy alone. So now, you know, one of the questions was, well, there looked to be improvement in survival. How long and how durable was that survival? At one year, 38% of the patients continued to live during the evaluation. At 18 months, it was uh, around 24%. At 24 months, it was 16%. And then at 30 months, it was 16% and 11%. And the 16% was in the CPT-11 arm, and the 11% was in the bevacizumab alone. So those are pretty impressive data, I think. What's very difficult is what to compare this to. We don't have a lot of information about how to compare this kind of data that far out in the recurrent setting, because we haven't had a lot of successful therapies. 
And so, you know, there was the ability to try to go back and look at a number of different studies and try to say, well, what did we see in these other studies? And we really just have 12-month overall survival data, the percentages. They range basically from 20 to 25%. The most recent CCNU study that was done, it was Enzostorin versus CCNU, and looking at the CCNU arm, which was the superior arm, the 12-month percent survival was 26%. So I think that these are all very encouraging data, and at least... It also showed us that the patients, and many of these patients, continued to do well for a long period of time. What about the difference between the arm that got the Arena TCAN and not? Yeah, so, you know, for the most part, it was pretty equal. And there was a couple of settings, like, for instance, the 12-month time was equal. The 18-month favored the Bevacizumab alone arm. The 24-month might have slightly favored the Bevacizumab alone arm. And then the 30-month evaluation favored the CPT-11 arm. Overall, kind of as I was looking at it, and you also have in your presentation, you plotted out the two curves, and and overall, it looks pretty similar. That's right. I mean, I think there's really no difference between the two. And, you know, the one thing we can take away from this, I think, is that what is carrying the majority of the weight through this is really the BEV and not the CPT-11. Where are we right now, or where are you right now in terms of using BEV and GBM off-study? For the most part, I tend to limit it to the recurrent setting. There is a couple settings where we will use it earlier, and that's usually that patient who maybe finished surgery and is having a real difficult time getting through radiation. They have lots of mass effect, lots of swelling, and usually they have a pretty poor Karnofsky performance status. And that's the group that we try to salvage them with bevacizumab. And not all patients get salvaged in that setting, but some do, and I think those that do, I think, get a real benefit from it. Anything you want to say in updating us in terms of side effects and complications with BEV? You presented data in the brain presentation. Maybe you could comment on that also. We basically updated the safety that went to July of 2008. And at July of 2008, the reality was there was really no change in the safety signal. So from our original evaluation to the evaluation that went through to July of 2008, there was no change in the safety signal. I guess the things that jumped out at me was, compared to what I think about in other tumors, maybe a little more hypertension or about the same? I think the hypertension was probably about the same. It was interestingly less in the CPT-11 arm. And whether there's some relative dehydration that occurs because of decreased fluid intake, whatever it is, I don't really know. But there was an interesting difference between those two arms. Yeah, right. And I guess the other thing, too, was pretty modest incidence of cerebral hemorrhage. I guess we're kind of getting used to that. Yeah, I think we all feel a lot more comfortable using bevacizumab in the setting of tumors in the brain. I guess in your study, it was less than 4%. I'm not sure even what the baseline might be. Yeah, I think also the grade 3 or greater cerebral hemorrhage toxicity, I think, was quite low. I think it was closer to 1%. Maybe it was 0 in one arm and 1% in the other. I don't have the exact numbers here. Anything else that was presented at ASCO or even new data elsewhere in the last six months in terms of bevacizumab and GBM? Well, I think, you know, the other information that's going to be coming out, and it was presented to some degree last year, is the upfront use of bevacizumab and glioblastoma. And I could only give you some insight in what we found from that study and that matured data from that same study that was presented at the Society of Neuro-Oncology. And that is that in this open-label 70-patient study, patients treated with radiation therapy, 
bevacizumab and temozolomide, that we found that the patients actually had a prolonged progression-free survival. It was about 13 to 14 months. And we compared it to a group of patients that was our own treatment or patients who we treated at UCLA and through Kaiser Community Hospital Group. And that median progression-free survival was about seven months. However, almost all the patients in that control group went on to receive bevacizumab at progression. The overall survival was not different between those two groups. So it's unclear what we'll really have to define is what is the benefit of that progression-free time? Do the patients really receive a clear benefit during that time? So is it better to use it up front or to use it in the recurrent setting? But the survival, I have a feeling we're not going to see a huge difference between those two. What are some of the new data and new trials with BEV? So then the other is what can we combine BEV with to do better than what we're doing right now? And, you know, there's been a lot of combinations that have gone forward, and none of them have really shown anything dramatically different than single-agent BEV. The other setting is going to be evaluating patients at BEV failure. And there's a number of groups that are putting together studies that will be evaluating that, and I think that that's a very exciting area for us to be evaluating. I've heard people say that, quote, patients who have progressive disease after BEV may in some way have more aggressive disease, difficult to treat disease. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, well, I think that what we always forget is that recurrent glioblastoma has always been difficult. It's been a very difficult disease to treat. So when we have failure of therapy in any setting where we've had success, it's a very hard disease to treat. And I think it continues to be. I think we had a similar type of thing occur after temozolomide failures, that it was very difficult to treat those patients. So I'm not sure that we're dealing with something different than that. What are some of the randomized studies or phase three studies, if any? Are there phase three studies right now looking at BEV? Yeah, there are two upfront phase three studies. And these are randomized, blinded studies. I think they're very well designed. And I think they're going to get at the issue of does BEV provide a benefit, certainly at progression-free survival. Let's talk about other targets and agents and systemic management of GBM. What about the so-called agent XL184, which inhibits MET, BGFR, and RET? Yeah, it's an agent that I think the most important thing it does, the obvious signal that we're seeing is related to VEGFR2, but it's a very potent VEGFR2 inhibitor. It's a potent MET inhibitor and RET. Now, really the two important targets here are MET and VEGFR2. We really have not been able to evaluate in glioblastoma inhibiting MET alone in a very specific way. So this is really our first evaluation of MET inhibition, but it is along with VEGFR2. And we know that what happens with VEGFR2 is we have these significant changes in permeability of the tumor vasculature, and it makes the scans look better. And this is the same thing that happened in the bevacizumab setting. The question is, what's the additional benefit of MET in this setting, of inhibiting MET, we don't really know the answer to that yet. So, so far, what we see is a signal that's very similar to other VEGFR2 inhibition. And this happens to be, I think, a very good one. I think we're seeing similar effects to what we see with bevacizumab and probably very similar to what we're seeing with sidirinib. But I think, you know, it's going to take further evaluation to be able to differentiate what the addition of MET inhibition is providing. To my naive eyes, it looked like it resulted in a pretty decent response rate. Absolutely. And that response rate is a similar type of response rate that we've seen with bevacizumab and also with sidirinib. 
Both of these agents, again, targeting the VEGF signaling pathway, and that may be why we're seeing very similar types of effects. Well, the numbers I see here are 41% and 60% in the abstract in terms of response. I believe the six-month progression-free survival was in the high 20s, which is also very impressive. So this is a TKI, I guess, like sidirinib? Absolutely. It's very similar in the mechanism of action on the VEGFR2 component. But now, I guess sidirinib, does it have effects outside of VEGFR? Yes, it does. It has PDGF, receptor inhibition, I think CKIT. I want to ask you about sidirinib, but just to finish out on this other agent, what about side effects and toxicity? Well, I think that with sidirinib, I haven't had a lot of personal use of sidirinib, so I can't speak to my own personal experience, but I think that hypertension is a problem, that fatigue is a problem, that in many of these agents that patients get treated and they have to be dose-reduced. I think that happened in the XL184 setting as well, that there was a number of patients that would start at a particular dose. Three weeks into it, they would begin to have maybe a little bit of toxicity, and that toxicity could be high blood pressure, although I have to say that the high blood pressure was not significant in the XL184 setting. But fatigue could be, the hand-foot syndromes could be, and almost all the patients had to dose-reduce and then continue on a lower dose. But very interestingly, even on those lower doses, there seemed to be continued benefit in many of the patients. I think a lot of this is figuring out how to use these drugs. And what's the next step with this agent, the XL agent? Well, I think one is figuring out what is the best dosing in the recurrent setting. And then once that's nailed down, it's going to be used in the upfront setting. I don't think there's any doubt there are studies going forward evaluating it in the upfront setting with temozolomide and radiation therapy, so there really isn't much. I think that that's very clear how they're going to move forward with it. What about use in recurrent disease? I mean, it seems like it's demonstrating decent response rates. Is it something you'd like to be able to use? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, again, it would be really helpful to understand how different this is than the other agents that we have to know how to use agents like this in specific patients. I think that this fits into the exact same use that we would have for bevacizumab at this time in the recurrent setting. What about sidirinib? Where are we right now in terms of clinical research with that agent? There's a very interesting study that's going to report soon. It's a randomized study that evaluates sidirinib versus sidirinib and CCNU versus CCNU alone. It's called the Regal study, I believe, and it's just waiting to report I think, you know, the nice thing about this study is it's a study that includes a control. We didn't have that in the bevacizumab setting. So it will also clarify the benefit of a drug like CCNU that we more commonly use in our patients with recurrent glioblastoma, where CPT-11, for instance, is not as commonly used. So we'll see if there's a difference between the use of a drug like CCNU with sidirinib versus sidirinib alone. What's been seen in terms of responses to sidirinib? I think it's very similar. You know, they recently reported the 30-patient data in JCO, and it showed that when you use the McDonald criteria, and again, our response rates can vary wildly based upon how we define response, but using the McDonald criteria, I believe that their response rate was closer to 26%, which again, is still very good. You hear about that in this disease that really has so few options, and From a practical point of view, do you think it would be helpful to have, for example, these two TKIs we've been talking about available? Do you think that the 
responses and the benefits that they induce are clinically meaningful from what you can see? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think it's really going to come down to what six-month progression-free survival is. I think that the response rate is one of our softer endpoints right now, and especially in the environment of these agents that affect the VEGF signaling pathway and the effect upon permeability, we could see great responses. You know, there was a very interesting study that was using a drug called pazopinib, and this is also a VEGFR2 inhibitor. And they had a median progression-free survival of 12 weeks. Every one of our studies that we've ever done that is not using these types of inhibitors, every chemotherapy study is the first scan, whether it's four weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks. The first scan is the median progression-free survival. Well, one would expect that with 12 weeks that this would be pretty beneficial. But the six-month progression-free survival was 3% in that setting, which is miserable. So you could see that we could be fooled by the response rates in many of these settings. And what we really have to focus on is the durability of the response. The other thing that I've heard about, including with bevacizumab, is the change in edema and the change on imaging. And I can see that that could confuse in terms of evaluating response. But on the other hand, I could see that maybe, for example, an anti-edema effect would be clinically helpful. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, we know that, for instance, that dexamethasone is very beneficial, but dexamethasone has many side effects associated with it. These agents seem to have less side effects that are associated with it, and they definitely provide a benefit. Having less swelling on the brain is beneficial to the brain. There's no doubt about that. Where are we right now with selingitide? That's an agent you've been involved with, and I see there was some stuff presented at ASCO on that. Anything new and exciting? Well, there hasn't been anything new yet. We're waiting on a large phase three study that is predominantly being run in Europe, and it is evaluating patients who are being treated up front with temozolomide and radiation therapy with or without selingitide. And in particular, it's geared to look at some of the issues related to methylation status. One of the hard things about selingitide is trying to understand the signal that exists in the recurrent setting to really say, is this really of meaning? Does this really provide something that we can hang our hat on? And the response rate and the six-month progression-free survival were all pretty similar to what we've seen in other agents such as our chemotherapies. There was a very interesting effect on survival that was seen in the patients that received a higher dose of the selingitide. It was a 2,000 milligram dose, and their survival was out to nine months, which was different than the group that got 500 milligrams in the recurrent setting, which was closer to six or seven months. And both of these groups really received the drug for about the same amount of time. So it's hard to know if you receive the drug for the same amount of time, how one can have an extended survival and the other one didn't. But it is still interesting, and I think it's worth evaluating this. And it would be great if this were a positive study because we need more drugs with our disease. Anything new in the mechanism of action of how selingitide actually works? I don't think so. I think it's been kind of frustrating because it's hard to measure what the real impact is of using selingitide. There actually is a study that was done doing that same approach that I spoke about earlier, where you have patients who have recurrent glioblastoma, they get selingitide, and then they do a surgery and try to evaluate that. I think that trying to understand the real mechanism of action and what the impact is on the tissue on the molecular level is very difficult. And I would love for that data to clarify some of this, because I think we really aren't clear about the mechanism of action. What's been thought in that regard? 
Well, I mean, in the end, it's a intrigan receptor inhibitor. So it is supposed to. It is supposed to have an effect that could limit the diffusion of the tumor and the invasion of the tumor. That's been hard to measure. That's a very difficult thing to measure in the human setting. And by doing that, it might also have some direct anti-tumor effect. One could begin to imagine, and because of the side, I have to say that slingitide, the side effects are minimal in that setting. So it could be combined with many different kinds of agents. And I think one of the important evaluations is evaluating it with bevacizumab to see if there is this kind of diffuse effect that occurs and this migration effect that occurs and the failure of bevacizumab, would the addition of selingitide be helpful in that setting?